HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live to the cosmos from the backyard at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45. Going to be joined today in the studio with uh, Maxime Belay, co-author of uh, Modernist Cuisine uh, Cookbook. Also, oh here he is, he's coming through right now, I see him. Uh, so I'll wait to introduce him. We're also here with uh, – da- hey, Dana, what's your last name? Goodyear. Goodyear from the New Yorker. She's just hanging out, but she's welcome to chime in anytime she wants. Okay. You put on a pair of headphones. This one's for you. <laughs> okay. Right? And as usual, we're joined with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, who's sitting typing on her computer, getting stuff done for the cooking issues machine. Am I right? That's true. Yeah? It's yeah. Berlin. Berlin? Berlin. Yeah. So uh, – Hey, Maxime. Here, uh, pull up a seat. Here's your microphone and uh, your headphones. So, uh, Maxime, I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, Maxime, you were a graduate of what, of ICE? Originally our arch nemesis, the FCI. Is that, is that true? Or <laughs> Indeed, ICE. So. Yeah, very, yeah. Very brief since at ICE. Yeah, that's our arch nemesis. But then moved to uh, what anyone who was hanging around uh, in New York in, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s, Jack's Oyster Bar, right? Fantastic place. Didn't you work there? I did, I did. I, I actually went to Jack's Luxury Oyster Bar as a stagiaire for, directly from ICE. The chef left um, about two weeks later, and Jack Lamb, crazy as he is, gave me the head chef job, so it was, it was quite a transition for... Yep. For a young chef, um. but a great. I mean, it, uh, you know, w- I went. I think once, but it moved across the street, right? I went when it, I went when it was on its original side of the street. Yes, and I think uh, once when it was across the street. Yeah, I was. I was there when it was still the um, the little carriage house, and right. then it moved to uh, the old Makimono space. Where was that on Fifth Fifth Street? It's on Fifth Street. Yeah. Anyway, fabulous place, great pedigree. Went moved from there to the Fat Duck, you know, the uh, Heston Blumenthal's famous joint, right? Indeed. Uh, and you were on the restaurant side or the development side? The development side. I, I began uh, on the restaurant side, and then the, they quickly moved me to the development side. That was my, you know, my, my calling. All the the research and the and the you know great dishes that that Hessen would would uh, push us to create. So. Right. And then we're tap, was tapped by uh, Nathan Miravold to to uh, you, know, you know be a part of the modernist cuisine dream team and so you know the three authors on the book of course nathan who's been on the show before nathan miravold chris young good friend of ours been on the show before and maxime for the first time on the show well welcome it's so nice to be here thanks for having me and uh dana who again may or may not chime in i don't know welcome to is writing an article on strange meats true or false (laughs) true true all right very good nice so listen, call all of your questions in to uh, 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So how are you doing? Maxine was at our bar the other day. How, how I loved it. The, the, oh, my God. You, you were right. The, the basil cocktail, that you, it's delicious. It's oh. so fragrant. Thanks. I appreciate it. We're, it's a technique we do at uh, Booker and Dax. 
which basically we just lost, by the way, Best New Bar, Time Out yeah. in New York to a Maison Premier, but it's good to lose to such a great bar. Maison Premier. Anyway, a uh, technique where we smash the Thai basil with uh, liquid nitrogen. And what, what, what happens is when it's frozen that, that, that deeply in liquid nitrogen, there's no sort of uh, enzymatic degradation of the uh, yeah. herb at all. And we can shatter it into super, super fine particles, even just using a hand muddler. Then add uh, liquor directly. That prevents uh, the enzymes because the enzymes can't really work in high proof liquor absolutely. you get that beautiful extraction yeah it's, it's like, it's like yeah. the liquor sucks it straight out and then uh, lime juice the ascorbic acid further prevents breakdown by absolutely. enzymes and then shake it like a normal daiquiri from there on out but I like it it's a good and drink. the color is beautiful but the, but the, the just the aroma is just yeah yeah, spectacular. So before I get into questions, it's, uh, and I hate to do this to you because everyone always asks every you know this is the question I have to ask you, and if I don't ask you, someone will get upset at By me. By all means. Well, uh, so uh, what's what's next on your plate? Well, uh, right now we're really it's been the book tour. It's been an incredible journey. You know, just sharing, teaching, um, you know, every different technique and, and and all the aesthetics that we that we went into creating modern cuisine. Uh, we're able to share on so many levels. It's just so much information, and we're by having this book tour, we're able to sort of unravel it and and, and look at the different aspects that went into to its making. Uh, but going forward, we've had many propositions, and we're not totally clear exactly what what the the next phase is. We we have a a little project in the, in the works that will come out soon. That's good, kind of exciting. Uh, but that's just that's. I'm going to give you a teaser on that one. And You're not allowed to tell me any more specifics. No, on it? no. no. <laughs> all right. They, all they, right. You know, at every they make you sign giant NDAs and where uh, uh, intellectual ventures. Oh, really? oh they, yeah, that's yeah. it. So, so I, I, I am bound by. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, just you know, dropping it there that there is something coming. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. Thanks for making me curious now and not giving me anything. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that off air. My full intention. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh, by the way, in case you have randomly tuned to this podcast and don't know what modernist cuisine is uh, it is probably the single kind of greatest cookbook publishing phenomenon of all times probably I would have to say Dave, of all times well that's very flattering yeah next to me like, a, look, like for, for instance right Apicius is the only book on Roman cookery it's not that it's a great book sure. but it's the only book right now we have a huge uh, a huge output of cookbooks and food related books and yet nothing that has ever been kind of, uh, attempted much less successfully produced on this scale it's amazing I mean uh uh, anyway, astounding book. Uh, Thank you. Uh, you know, the, and the thing is, is that even though I guess the, go, the going Amazon price is what about four fifty now? Five, yeah, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's yeah, 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 about four hundred. Yeah, so it's not not an inexpensive book, but no. uh, as Nathan uh, is fond of pointing out, a lot of paper in that book. A lot of paper and very good investment per you know the amount of information you're getting. I mean, if you if you if you think about it, it's five volumes. You break it down, it's. Uh, and the amount of work that went into it, I think it's you know as a as a young chef, as a as a as a passionate foodie, whatever you want to call, you know yourself, it's I think it's a very good investment for your 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 future creative uh, culinary adventures. But it's less than half the price per book of the of the Abuli books, for instance. Yes, if you're going to compare, if you want to, yeah, exactly. If you want to compare, if that, that's the reference. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> what's. Uh, What's funny about it, not to speak on such venal terms about it, but, uh, you know, everyone's wondering, well, you know, Nathan, who has an unbelievable amount of money, an absurd amount of money, really, when you think about it. He's a rich man. He's very well. He's yeah. done very well for himself, yeah, and he's yeah. worked hard for it. Wait, so. wait, well, I'm not saying anything negative yeah, about no, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got a lot of means. You know, multi-billionaire. But absolutely. Uh, everyone was like, well, you know, this is kind of uh, this is kind of uh, one of the criticisms you hear is that it's just because he has a lot of money, he's never going to make the money back. But, in fact, the book is good enough. It's, it's making the it's actually, make, it's actually beco- becoming on the edge of profitable, and that, that was never the intention. But you know, the, I mean, we thought we would sell two thousand copies, maybe, and now we're almost at thirty thousand copies. And at that price point, yeah, we're, we're we're recuperating the you know the investment that was made, and that's that's amazing. I mean, the fact that it's actually going to be a profitable book, yeah. I think, is yeah. the greatest sign of. I mean, look, success. I mean, success in terms of kind of the impact that it's going to make in the world. The fact that something can be at that cost can have that much money dumped into its production. Yep. Right. Yep. Which Nathan will never divulge what the actual number is, but we know it's a lot because I mean, at, at minimum, you ha- at mi- bare minimum, you had at least fifteen, you know, very very qualified people working. 
full time for how many years? Plus, then a lot at more least for three and a half. He had a full team, and, and then yeah. and then a lot more than the fifteen for a big chunk of that time. For, for the the final year push, when we really had to get everything together, it was almost forty. You know, including yeah. all the ghostwriters and the the copy editors, and it was it was a pretty you know, massive team of, of, uh, experts in, you know, in what they did. Yeah. And so the, yeah. And so for, for something of that magnitude to be able to break even just, I think goes to show, uh, kind of how ripe the time was for this information, the need for the book. And also, uh, you know, it's just, I think it's an interesting measure. So one, one that's often not talked about actually in the, when people talk about the book, they don't talk about that aspect. of Absolutely. It. No. And I'm glad you bring that up because it, it was, it was the, it, in terms of timing and and people being you know open to what this means you know that that that, that merging of, of of art and science which is a beautiful thing um uh, and it's something that that you know a lot of of uh, classic traditionalists you know want, wanting to to reject and at the same time uh when you embrace it you realize that that each each really enhances the other and it's 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 such a clean beautiful relationship that it's yeah it, it was prime for that and people are responding that way and so that's that's a testament to the progress we've made with 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 looking at the different roles of food and and something else i think i, I might have commented on this show about it uh before i'm not sure i can't remember uh if you haven't seen the book at all one of the interesting things about it is um and this is something I hadn't expected before I was able to see it is kind of how personal it is it's not uh in other words it's not uh it's not the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's, it's, not, it's not a cold textbook. No, yeah, no, no. But by, by no means. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of personal feelings, personal, uh, I mean, it's... it's there's some it, humor. There's, I mean, there's, there's a, yeah, a lot of personal aspects. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book. Anyway, so we have a, we have a question on the book. Someone who uh, read, actually, from uh, Zymergy, the uh, blog, I guess, yeah. uh, had a question regarding uh, the Spetzel recipe in the book. And I'll read it. Uh, even though it's addressed to me, yes. I'll read it to you since Absolutely. you're going to know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, I've attempted uh, the Modernist Cuisine Sour Cream Spetzel uh, recipe twice now with less than desirable results. So you're going to troubleshoot this. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's, right? let's, let's, fix, let's fix this one. All right. The issues are that they will not uh, form into a shape. The first time I attempted them, they basically dissolved into the ice water. The second time I received a new batch of uh, Activa YG. Uh, by the way, that's meat, meat glue. It's actually like a protein bonder. YG is the one that's made for dairy and for protein dairy. stuff. Uh, made the recipe and split the batch in two. I then used a... Before we go on, why don't you describe the recipe first so that people know what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so this is actually a recipe inspired by uh, by Alex Naki from uh, Ideas and Food. And uh, we really, uh, as part of our um, uh, beef uh, uh, cheek uh, goulash, we wanted to have a, a modernist uh, special component. And uh, and so that, that was the basis for creating the recipe. And it's it's a combination of I think it's cream. I have to, I have to look at the recipe in right. front of me to, to to be fully aware. Of All right, but yeah, but information. But basically, it's it's a dairy based spetzel uh, where uh, we we're using the the, the binding properties of Activa YG. We also use uh, an additional um, element of protein. That we use al- uh, there's albumin in there, and what you create is these very fluffy little dumplings that. Uh, um, after being set with that enzymatic process, then are uh, nicely toasted in brown butter and uh, served as a garnish for this for this you know very unctuous seventy uh, two hour beef cheek. All right, and so the the proteins in it, uh, egg egg proteins, I guess, yes. egg yeah, white yeah. proteins, and also uh, the, 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 the dairy proteins, the dairy all, proteins all the, yeah. are being bound together with an enzyme, transglutaminase and meat glue, yep. set and then. Uh, to, Poached and then toasted, or did, yeah, yeah. Well, well, they're actually they're never actually poached. They, what you do, what we do is we uh, sieve them after they've uh, one, once the enzymatic process has begun, we sieve them into um, through the, a, a spätzle maker into uh, ice water, and you get this nice little dumpling shape. So, okay, and then you and then you give them a final fry to to really okay give them that that textual contrast. So the first time that Red made them, it dissolved into the ice water. The second time, uh, received a new batch of the Activa YG, made yeah. them and split the batch in two, used one quarter of the batch as directed with the same results, let the other half set in the fridge for 24 hours, thinking that it needed time to set up. Yeah. That was also not the answer. By the way, uh, protein gel made with Activa, once set, if it's broken, it's broken. It's, it's not broken. Gonna, right. it's you're, not bre- you're breaking a gel. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that, yes. So as, as pointed out, that was not the answer because that won't work. No. Uh, the last uh, quarter of the batch went into the freezer, another failure. I can attest that I'm 
oh, following the recipe to the letter, but cannot seem to get this one down. I'm not sure if you know the formulation or not, but anything that you could add would be helpful. Uh, gelatin, water, sour cream, ricotta, whey, protein, isolate, white. Oh, there's gelatin in it, too. There's gelatin, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We so want to give a, give a maximum amount of, of protein capacity. How come you don't do a... You know, um, how come you, oh, the, the cold water then sets the gelatin, yes. and then the gelatin's cross-linked by the YG. Exactly. So I would bet that they're not, I would bet that you're not, they're not waiting long enough for the gelatin to, to get syrupy. That's right. Yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a very good point. You, uh, you, w- when, you're, when you have your base mixture, letting the gelatin hydrate, uh, you know, at least, I mean, doing that over an ice water bath until it gets that, that syrupy consistency. Uh, and then and then setting it directly into the ice water is is one of the tricks. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people like for me, like uh, one of the great meat glue applications involving gelatin is my brother in law Wiley Dufresne's uh, veg noodles and like quinoa yes, chips. Absolutely. And a lot of people have trouble duplicating that recipe, and I think ninety nine percent of the time it's because they're not getting the, the gelatin uh, the hydration and yeah. the. And the yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the sad, one, not sad. But one of the interesting things about a lot of these, uh, a lot of these techniques is they really do require. As sometimes it is helpful to see people do it. Absolutely. Because there's a lot of like uh, the hand in it. I know that like, you know like um, Wiley also used to do a very kind of a well known in in WD fifty a well known recipe where he would uh, take uh, ca- carrot and cardamom. Uh, I think it was carrot. No, I did carrot. Carrot, whatever. Carrot. And then he would freeze it uh, and dip it in a mixture of uh, capa carrageen and locust bean gum right, right. to make his egg yolk. To make the yolk with the, with the egg uh, with the the egg white. Yeah, uh, the egg white was a coconut, coconut, coconut like a like fluid LBG. Gel. Yeah, yeah. A f- very famous uh, WD-50 dish. Uh, Which and, we have in the book. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, but the, the truth is it's actually a very difficult recipe. If you've never done it before, it takes a lot of practice yeah. to get those egg yolks to work properly. And when you're first doing it, uh, you'll get like one in eight will work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then by the time, you know, you've been doing service every day for uh, a month, you lose one in 20. Do you know what I mean? But but there was always like the one cook in the kitchen who their job was to do all 60 of those every day, right. get them plated, get them away. Right. And, you know, they had the magic touch, but it really comes from practice. So a it's lot of these huge, things yeah, are some practice. Exactly. It's a huge amount of practice. Yeah. And, right. and, and feel and, you know, exactly. So listen. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're going to go to commercial break. Be right back with Maxime Belay. Cooking issues. All right. Team, the MG's nice. Coming back with cooking issues, Maxime Belay, caller, you are on the air. Uh, yeah, hi Dave, thanks. Hi. Um, I don't know how relevant my question is to your um, modernist show today, but um, I'm charged with making some dairy-free mashed potatoes for this weekend. Ooh. And um, I've seen some recipes online that basically call up for like chicken broth or some milk substitute like soy milk or almond milk to uh, simulate the creaminess like that, that dairy would to mashed potatoes and I was wondering if you had any um, alternative suggestions how, how long do you have from now how I'm sorry how long do I have yeah how long do you have to get the recipe together from today um, I mean I'm making them Friday night hmm what do you think, Maxima? I would go for like an emulsion. I would do like a I would veg- vegetable. I mean, if you really want the creaminess, you have to have some veg- like yeah, vegetable oil base, and uh, I don't. I'm not sure what starch you would use. I mean, or you know, yeah. if you were going to do, I mean, you could almost get like a, a mixture of gum arabic and xanthan, like the tickle oil that could, we use. You could do that one, and you could do a, like an like an oil, like a very heavy oil water yeah. emulsion. Yeah. that'll hold as it dilutes. And, or as it's mixed with a solid, and you could get some of that. You'll get some of that creaminess, and you could just choose a delicious 
oil. I wonder if you could do a slurry of the um, like a, the the potato flakes, uh, hydrate them just a little bit, uh, and then blend in the uh, the like a vegetable oil. And make that your your, your fat base. So. I'm just I'm a little worried that if you don't pre-emulsify it, that it might break. It, it, it could, but this but with the amount, it depends on the ratio. If you're doing like the robuchon or like very like very That's high 50%, fat, yeah, like fifty percent fat. So. But if you want the the unctuousness, I mean, you know, even fifteen twenty percent fat, I think the amount of starch that you already have in the potato. Uh, will act as a as a pretty good emulsifier for for a vegetable oil base. Have you tried just a vegetable oil base yet? I, I really haven't even played around with it that much. I've just kind of started looking into it right now. All right. Well, first I would go bonehead simple, like we said, and just you know yeah. make mashed potatoes and beat uh, some uh, you know put oil into it. I mean, right. G- gently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> put it through like a. I mean, like yeah, yeah. Don't turn it to glue. <laughs> no, yes. please, no chewing, yeah. no chewing on mashed potatoes. Yeah, please. yeah, yeah. And then after that, uh, my next step would be to move into. Uh, uh, my next step would be to move into something like. Um, like a tickle oil, like a xanthan gum yeah, Arabic yeah. mix. That's a great thing. Hey, what about like, uh, hey, does it have to be dairy-free and uh, completely like, what about eggs? We combine with like an egg yolk? And then with no, eggs, egg, are, eggs are fine. Egg yolk would be great. Passover and, and, and at the last second, you, like so a carbonara style where you just get that richness. Eggs are fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, just no dairy, basically. I think, you know, yeah, you could go like old school, like almost using the egg yolk, like super thick, but like... like egg you yolk instead of the gum arabic and xanthan, just to um, As your emulsifier, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, it's going to add some of the emulsifiers absolutely. that you would not... Yeah, so you're basically making a mayonnaise and folding it in. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly that. Yeah, I think if you're allowed to use egg, but just make sure you don't get the temperature too high. Again. Exactly. You know, do you have access to a circulator? Wait. Yeah, wait till the um, potatoes cool off a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, but do you, do you have a circulator or no? No, no, I'm pretty much working. I live in Brooklyn in this town. I don't even have a kitchen. I just yes. kind of. But, but, but <laughs> if, you, make if, you, if you just get a seven, $7, $8 digital thermometer, you check the, the temperature of your potatoes right when you, you know, before you want to serve them, and you fold that in to mm-hmm. give it that, you know, just that, that, that um, folding, um, you know, technique. Uh, yeah. I think that would be great. Be, so. Yeah, but just do it yeah. at the last minute. Exactly. If you have a circulator, you can cheat and, so and spread wait. it out in a Ziploc and go, but yeah, but just yeah. wait till the last minute. Yeah. Last minute. And, uh, and if so you... Just do potatoes, season them up, you know, keep them, you know, starchy, warm, whatever they are, and then warm. fold yeah. that in at the very end. Yeah, and use a ri- ricers or, 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 or potato milk to have your, your, your potato base, and then at the last second, you, you, you fold it in with the right ratio. And that's something where you just keep on adding in just to get the right mouthfeel, and you, you just have to keep on tasting for that. Um, another cool thing that we love to do for to increase the potato flavor as well, if you're using oil, that's a great medium for that. You can take the skins from the potatoes, uh, the, the potato peels, obviously, that you, you, you've uh, uh, sure, taken sure. away from Peeled you. Before. Exactly. And fry them in the oil uh, beforehand that you're going to use for your mayonnaise. So they have, a, they have a beautiful, deep, nutty flavor. And then strain that, cool that down, make your mayonnaise like that, and then you'd have a really intensely flavored uh, and creamy mashed potato. Oh, cool. That sounds that sounds great. What what kind of frying on the like like deep frying or just kind of oh like in the, you know, in the pan you know just just, just, in a, just in a pan you know and you you have your skins in there and you you wait until they get sort of you know crisped and and, and golden you don't want to burn them you don't want to get any bitter flavors but just, just sure, until just until, like until you extract them exactly you're just extracting the, the some of those great. really beautiful flavors. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Well, good. Good luck. Let us know how it works out. Absolutely. Do we still? Right. Uh, yeah, I will. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you. Hey, do we still have another caller? All right, caller, you are on the air. Yeah, hello. Hi. Oh, you got an echo. Hi. Yeah. An <laughs> echo? Hold on a second. Uh, is that any better? Nah, no. no, we'll deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi. Uh, so uh, I'm a current student at FCI, actually, and I had a question kind of related to something I'm trying to do for my menu project. Okay. Uh, and so um, two, two questions. I need both to create food in uh, large sheets, and also I'm, I'm asking about uh, edible threads, if you know of anything. Uh, Wait, large sheets of what? And yeah, edi- what was the... F- yeah, okay, so, um, for example, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to use is uh, Yuba, which is easy enough to get into a large sheet, but I was also thinking about using transglutamase uh, to bind thin sheets, thin slices of meat into large sheets. Yes, um, sure. I guess, are you familiar with uh, shibori? Shibori. Shibori. No, no. Shibori is a Japanese uh, resist dyeing technique, like a, a very badass form of tie dye, basically. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and so the idea is to is it, it silk screening or is it? Hmm? Is it silk silk screening or is it? So yeah, cleaning. I'm not sure. 
no, no. I guess so. My idea is um, taking uh, foods and binding them using these resist techniques. We actually weave thread into the fabric and then pull it tight and bunch it in different designs. And then you dye it. And where the fabric is pulled tight, it resists the dyeing. Right. Okay. So the idea is to bind food, and then it would then resist different cooking methods through the different courses, either by taking like a sheet of sashimi, uh, binding it very carefully and bunching it, and then soaking it in a like ceviche base so that it the bound portions resist the acid. They aren't exposed to the acid, and so some of it comes out as sort of a ceviche uh, cure, and then some of it comes out so as the sashimi, for example. Hmm. Okay. I mean, looking for an edible thread that is fine enough to do that sort of work uh, with something as delicate as fish, but that is still edible. How strong? Hmm? How strong? Oh. Like scallion, scallion comes to mind as the classic thread. Sure, sure, sure. sure. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, like chives are yeah. like long pieces yeah. that are then you know lightly blanched. I mean, that's right. the classic. Yeah. You know, thing like that 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 works. I mean, I'm sure there's others. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, you can you can do starch-based ones. I mean, that would be consist of making uh, a starch paper based on uh, like maybe a really good uh, prehydrated tapioca starch. Mm. Uh, you make a leather. Maybe a little, a little bit of oil so that the, the it breaks down in your mouth uh, more easily, and I think I think that might be. I I don't know, but then it might hydrate. You'd yeah, have a tough it time when it's yeah, in, yeah. in contact with Absolutely. the with the with fish. The water, and, yeah, yeah, like, it might you, you are, okay, so you need something waterproof, right? Which means that mm. you're you're dealing with. I mean, that, that, that right there is a problem. So now you're you're basically down to long long scale plant fibers. Or, yeah, absolutely. Or, or you could do a gluten base, actually. Oh yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. idea. Yeah, can you, you make do. that strong enough? Yo, absolutely. Yeah, we've yeah. done it with, with pasta. We've done it where if you do if you if you cut them just fine enough, you could do a very uh, mm. a, a, a fresh pasta enriched with with about depending on the flour you're using five to seven percent uh, vital wheat gluten and Bob's Red okay. is a really good brand. And you could get yeah. you could get a very uh, uh, sort of you know. Uh, uh, Elastic yeah. um, thread that would be, you know, very workable, but also break down as you chew very easily. Can so you hit it with RM to make it even tougher? Or no? that, that we we've done that for the for buckwheat because there was you had the protein content, but we didn't have enough st- uh, uh, of uh, um, of the the the, the, the starch. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the would be very work very well with the meat course too. Have yeah. you guys heard of uh, was it? Um, uh, collagen thread. Oh yeah, yeah. Doesn't break down so nicely though. Yeah, not, in the not mouth, feels, yeah. Not yeah. feels not mm-hmm. so nice. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, well, think about it this way. I mean, co- co- collagen on the outside doesn't break down as nicely as like intestine, for instance. Sure. Uh, right. Tripe would be cool. That would be cool. That would work. Tripe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, Honeyco- yeah. honeycomb tripe is an amazing. Yeah. Yeah, or, or or like long, like carefully cut pieces of uh, sausage casing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, as as for gluing sheets, it's no problem. That's no problem. Yeah, that's stuff's meant to do it. Here's my one recommend recommendation. The only time I've ever had uh, meat glue provide an off flavor in a dish that I've done was when I glued a. Um, I glued many, many layers of different colored fish together and oh, then uh, vacuumed them it together. It looks so cool, though. Well, no, but yeah, but so so I, the first time I did it, I over yeah, meat glued it and yeah. I vacuumed it and I let it cure in the vacuum bag. Ah, okay. And then I had, I perceived a flavor that, and, and I, but so the second time I did it, I used a much less amount of meat glue, vacuumed it, and then before, like right after I crushed it into shape, yeah. I cut the bag open yeah. and then it could air out sure. in the fridge while it was setting. Mm, and and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, let that flavor come off. Yeah, would so, you, especially with fish, um, when I am butchering before you put the sheets together, would you cut them across like you're doing for sashimi or along the grain to kind of provide stability? Uh, any like thin, beautiful sheet of fish is going to be absurdly uh, delicate, yeah. no matter how you yeah. do it, yeah. uh, unless you're literally cutting. Um, Unless you're literally cutting in a big piece and then preserving the sinew along the cut, which is possible, like I've, you know, we've done tuna sinew is delicious, you know, uh, but mm-hmm. you're going to be tough getting big pieces. That stuff you could you could you could hit somebody in the face with; it won't break. But, <laughs> but yeah, I guess yeah. If, if you were to if you were to like partially cure the meat, um, then you might mm-hmm. have yeah. I mean, if, if you give it not cure, I would actually do a brine. But if you were to do like a three and a half salts percentage, you know, to, to water. Uh, 2% sugar brine 
uh, you might be able to get a, a little bit more uh, elasticity and, and um, I think, structure uh, mm. to the fish. Yeah, I mean, the best way to slice, yeah. unless you're going to do some sort of special slicing, yeah. is to par-freeze par it. Don't freeze it all the way. Par Just freeze. get it par-freeze, throw it on uh, like a very high-quality meat slicer, and go directly in between sheets of wax paper, and then keep them almost frozen until you're about to use them. Because once those things thaw out, good night. It's, yeah. Mm. Would the transglutamase still work while it's frozen, or would you apply it frozen if it thaws? It no, would activate. No, no, needs to thaw. Needs to thaw yeah. in order for this. What you what what you do is is because so when we when we, you know when I was doing it, I would take the the you know fairly stiff but not fully frozen sheets. I would layer them, uh, and then as soon as the salt and the sugar from the cure hits them, they melt out, yeah. and then you have a, a block. But then you don't lift them again. That's it. Yeah, you know it. what I mean? That's they're it. they're it done. Um, yeah, you know. Excellent. Thank you very much. And if you want to see a, a, a video, I have a video on cooking issues uh, on the blog, mm-hmm. I think, or linked to from a Star Chef's video I did where I did Mokumegane, which is the Japanese metalworking kind of, uh, you know, yeah. t- technique. And you can see the kind of in practice, like thin sheets of fish glued together. It's not what you want to do, but it might give you some uh, visual pointers on how to handle the products. Yeah. Excellent. And Thank I'm, you very much. I'm, I'm really curious to see how your your uh, you know this all comes together. This is uh, send us yeah, some, have, send us some photos. I, I will definitely uh, send you guys some photos. I have a, a friend who does a lot of food photography who's very interested. Also, who wants to and document it. So I will definitely send you guys something. Awesome. Cool. Some Thank photos you. and stuff. Yeah. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. So do we, we we have any more callers? Or should we take some email stuff? Let's do some emails. I think. All right. Do some emails. Yeah, I heard there was someone, but I heard that, which means we lost him. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. We went. I'm probably, you know, it's nice that we're getting some calls, which means I probably won't get to all of the email questions. Anything that I miss this week, I will try to get uh, next week. Uh, Michael writes in about nutmeg. Here's a question. I recently ordered a set of food grade essential oils from uh, Aftelier, which is Mandy Aftel. Do you, you work with her over there? She's we on we haven't worked with I know she did work with Daniel Patterson for a while, and then that's. Uh yeah, and she's right. good buddies with uh, Harold McGee, and, yeah, and so she has. She's a, basically a perfumer uh, out of uh, San Francisco or thereabouts, Bay Area, yeah. and she does a lot of interesting uh, stuff. And she actually has a line in William Sonoma now that just launched, but yeah. I haven't seen it because I haven't been to William Sonoma in like how long? I just, I just don't <laughs> go. You know what I mean? I'm forbidden to buy kitchen equipment, people. By the way, like literally, if I brought another anything, in my house, yeah, 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 right. I mean, anyway. Uh, so I recently order, ordered a set of food grade essential oils from uh, Aftelier. Uh, fun stuff, especially for those of us that don't have a Rotovap. Although Rotovap doesn't make essential oils. Just be clear on this. Rotovap does distillation, but not the steam distillation that is what happens when you're making essential oils. It's kind of a different piece of equipment. I don't do steam distillation because I don't have a rig for it. Anyway, you guys have the baller Rotovap, we the huge one. Jeez, the, you know what? The Bucci. Come hang out. Let's play. You, you know what? The thing is, is like I say, like a, a, anything I ever negative I, I would ever say about these guys is strictly due to jealousy. Just straight up jealousy. All right. Oh, God. Uh, okay. So uh, one of the items in my set is nutmeg essential oil. I seem to remember from reading Soul on Ice, which is, I guess, Eldridge Cleaver's book. Uh, that nutmeg was a popular prison hallucinogen with horrible side effects. So now I'm a little scared to use this stuff. Is there a chance that the hallucinogen is concentrated or conversely a reason to believe it was left behind, uh, left behind other, other words, not in the oil uh, to make sure it's completely safe? Okay, look, uh, the, the compound, there's a several possible psychoactive compounds in nutmeg. Uh, one of them is uh, meristocin, is the kind of famous one. Uh, parsley seed oil has a lot of it. And if you go to Arrowid, which is like the place where kind of... Uh, thinking druggies go to put down their kind of mental thoughts on this is where I go. Uh, Most of those people aren't using nutmeg. Uh, They're using uh, parsley seed oil, which has a high concentration of this in various capsules. Listen, uh, that compound, uh, meristocin, is uh, is aromatic, and it's actually characteristic of nutmeg. So uh, there is no way that you uh, making a dish that you enjoy the taste of uh, are going to uh, get poisoned. Yeah. The levels would be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people who people who typically to get a hallucinatory effect out of it, uh, people will do things like grate a whole nutmeg or two, and then uh, kind of like somehow choke it down, and it's described as the most vile thing that they've ever done in their <laughs> lives. And then, like three you know hours later, they start feeling some sort of uh, psychoactive effects. So this is not something that you would accidentally. Do uh, you know? I mean, could you take that oil, uh, pack it into gel caps, uh, pound it, and do yourself harm? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. So. I mean, one of the problems with uh, nutmeg is that uh, – so, it's, you know, psychoactive uh, substances are kind of – you know, the, the thing with them is, is there there are certain psychoactive substances that, uh, that the danger level is fairly close to the psychoactive level. And I think nutmeg is closer than many in that kind of spectrum, which is kind of where the bad kind of, uh, you know, rep comes from. Because, yeah. you know, if you eat – uh, one grated nutmeg, you're you know you won't die, but if you eat like three, like there might be renal failure or something like that. So it's like, and, and you know, an order of uh, a three is not a safety level that most druggies would be happy with. You know, between activity and death, like it's not a happy number. Like an order of magnitude is a more friendly kind of a number. Um, but anyways, don't worry about it. Like what I'm saying is, don't worry about yeah. it. A little grating here and there. Delicious. Yeah. Also, apparently, uh, and again from Arrowhead, uh, the stuff degrades over time, similar to Thujone, which we're going to talk about in a minute with absinthe. And uh, in other words, so if you use nutmeg that's old, it's lost some of its principle. So, you know, even if you somehow are able to, you know, choke down, you know, that uh, jar of McCormick ground nutmeg that's in your uh, grocery uh, store. Most, mostly yeah. gone. Yeah, <laughs> it's mostly gone. And you probably, not that I, not that I recommend it. So uh, <laughs> don't, uh, don't worry. Don't worry. Right, absolutely. Don't worry. No. Uh, we might as well do this on a on a uh, similar one. We have in from uh, Tom Fisher in Lansdowne, PA, longtime uh, listener. Uh, first of all, he has a centrifuge question. Let's knock that out first, right? Okay, cool. Okay, before it. we get to the Thujon. Yep. Uh, got my centrifuge. Good. I'm glad to hear it. That's yes. one of all of our favorite pieces of equipment. Yeah, yeah, centrifuge. Our, yeah. My baby. Yeah, you're on the cutting edge, by the way. Like yeah. in 15 years, many more high quality restaurants are going to have centrifuges, and people won't think that that you're a freak show when you suggest that they go get one. Absolutely, not. it's it's coming to homes too. This is the next uh, cuisine arts. Uh, you know, really, they're going to make one. I think so. I think really? they, they, they were very curious about it yesterday. So let's see. Really? Oh, yeah. but by the way, before we get to this question, uh, yesterday was the ICP. Uh, I didn't go because I had a, a bunch of events I had to do. But uh, they, the, oh, thank you. The uh, the award ceremony and last year, uh, Modernist Cuisine was about to come out, and I co-hosted with Chris Young, you know, with the, one of the other authors. And uh, we, were, I was telling him, joking that next year, if you don't win every damned book award, uh, you know, it's going to be a, a travesty. And uh, in fact, you guys won three. We won three, in- was... including one that they made up for you, <laughs> right? Like profound. What was it? Was it? It was. Uh, oh God! It was like just inve- inve- like a future invention, or you know, it, it was. They were very gracious, and we were very, very honored to receive these awards. Bad, bad year to write a different book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Uh, in the cooking world, that is okay. So, uh, especially a professional book and/or one that purports to have amazing photographs, because you're just gonna get swamped. Anyway, okay. So, got a centrifuge and spun me some strawberries, uh, but I have an issue. I tossed the strawberries in the blender, added two grams uh, per le- per no two grams of uh, Pectinex Ultra SPL, which is a Pectinex enzyme, uh, for 500 grams of strawberry. That's, you know, more dose than you need. You could probably do one in that amount, but yeah. two's not going to hurt you. You just don't want to put so much Pectinex in that it uh, that you start... It has a slightly fermented aroma, but that's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, blend it until slightly warm. Good practice. Rested 10 minutes. Good practice. 10 to 20. Good practice. Uh, if you do something that's going to break down like bananas, you don't want to rest it any longer than 10 because it'll start to get kind of brown uh, flavors. Uh, and spun for 10 minutes... I would you don't say what speed. I'm assuming you have a centrifuge that'll do about four thousand times the force of gravity. Ten minutes is on the edge. Ten to fifteen is better longer, at those speeds, just because uh, it will clarify almost instantly. But the puck solidity is going to get a lot higher when you go faster. Okay, got a very solid puck and crystal clear juice. Glad to hear it. But on top was a layer of what appeared to be the same material as the puck, but floating on top like a vinegar mother. Scooping it out, clouded the juice, but spinning for five minutes more cleared it up nicely. Is this result of air bubbles trapped in the mix? Yes. Yeah, if, if you have a vacuum machine, vacuum that sucker out, break it before and get the air out. No problem. No problem. Right? Absolutely. Right. I mean, this is something that you know Maxime and I do every day, every and day. Uh, glad to hear. We've got it running all day. Yeah, zzz, ours actually is acting up. I have to get a new motor. Okay. Yeah, it's it's oh, not. Yeah, no, we, we have to replace the motor too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're using a centrifuge that only goes up to about four thousand uh, G's, the buckets really aren't. It's not like a hazard to life and limb, but your motors will have to be replaced eventually. It's about a nine hundred dollar problem in the one we have. Anyway, uh, now the second question, the different question. Uh, absinthe. Years ago, when absinthe first be- first became legal legal to sell in the U.S., I bought a bottle. Uh, and the maker seemed very energetic about saying it was free of contaminants like Thujone from the Wormwood. It's not a contaminant. It's an ingredient. 
<laughs> People are so crazy. All right. Uh, it it's, seemed all right. Basis for absinthe. Yeah, right? Anyway, yeah. Uh, it seemed uh, all right, but nothing to write home about. More recently, a friend got a bottle and was telling me about it, saying it was made from the original illegal formula. I said I'd like to try, uh, I said I'd tried the Thujone free version years ago and laughed and said, Thujone free absinthe is like alcohol free rum. Thujone is what makes it special. So, what's the real deal? Uh, thanks for doing the show every week. Okay. So, look, Thujone is a, another purported uh, hallucinogenic, uh, uh, you know, psychoactive uh, compound that is found in wormwood, which is one of the is the characteristic herb from uh, other than the anise taste, right. you know, uh, from um, absinthe, uh, you know, and all of the later ones, like you know, not later, but different ones like Pernod, not the reg- the regular one, or or Ricard or Pastis or any one of these Southern French like I'm a I'm a small man in Marseille drinking stuff. Not small, but old. It's, I don't mean small physically, it's, but it's but, delicious. Yeah, it's good, but it's especially good in the summer in Marseille is, when you're sitting is. out. You know what I mean? Marseille is a great town, nice by the way. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Marseille, fantastic town. I really like it. Anyway, uh, point is that uh, Thujone, in, uh, there's a lot of research out there. The one that you should go uh, look at, again, you can get to it via uh, Arrowhead vaults, but uh, there's a bunch of papers out there um, where they studied old pre-ban uh, absinthe bottles and found that modern absinthe has roughly similar levels to uh, older absinthe that the longer that uh, – and that's not really high enough to get you cranked up on Thujone by itself unless you drank so much that the ethanol is going to have you stumbling and falling over. So is there some sort of synergism between like the smaller amount of Thujone that's actually in absinthe and – you know who knows who can tell, but like most of the studies that have been done, quantitative studies out there, point to the fact that uh, really what's happening is you're getting drunk, uh, and uh, I mean and horribly drunk. Especially if you're trying to see uh, how much absinthe it takes you to have a thujone effect, you're going to be plastered. Plus, there's the placebo effect, right? Uh, the other the other thing is is that wormwood uh, thujone quantity in wormwood. And this has also been checked, goes down radically as it's stored on drying. So if you have your own wormwood. Uh, or other Artemis species sitting around, and you um, and you then uh, like take it right away and make absinthe. You're going to have much higher thujone levels than if you take a commercially prepared one that you get in an herb shop that's been dried and sitting around for a year, uh, and you're going to get a much uh, lower quality of thujone, but uh, quantity. But even so, uh, the numbers seem to indicate that you're not going to get crunked on the uh, on the thujone that you're going to get shellacked by the ethanol. Now. Uh, uh, Thujone is uh, it's, is it oregano or sage oil? It's one of those two. Go look it up on the internet's, uh, and it's super high in Thujone. I'm not telling you to go take this, uh, right? <laughs> but if you need to know what Thujone uh, goes like, go get a proper dose uh, response really, you know, uh, relationship off of the internet's. Uh, any one of these uh, you know herbal drug sites has many many users who have uh, put this stuff in. Make sure that you don't listen to anyone that doesn't tell you um, like relative quantities in different oils and also uh, body weight phenomena, things like this, because you want to get your doses uh, yes. right. And I've never, I've never tried it. But you know what? I've tried other things that other people like suppose, have supposed psychoactive effects. Like, for instance, you know, uh, when I was in Colombia, we were doing coca leaf infusions with coca leaf tea. Nice, and, yeah, and I, I've never done cocaine, so I don't know what, what that's like. I, I didn't feel anything different, but I had people who had a lot more than I did report that uh, it kept them up at night, for instance. So there was but, – <laughs> yeah. uh, but a lot Put of this – extra energy. Right, but it, a lot of this could just be mental. Do you know what it, I mean? Absolutely. Just placebo. If you tell someone you're having coca leaf infusion – no, there's an excitement. There's a there's a, there's a psychological reaction, which is you know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, okay. Let's take one more commercial. Do we have time to take one more commercial break? All right, let's take one more commercial break. Call your questions two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Cooking issues. <laughs> She's a good old pal She looks like a waterfowl 
and welcome back to Cooking Issues. By the way, I'm not, uh, Angela Gabatz, one of my favorite interns of all time, uh, wrote in from Nebraska, but I'm not going to have time to get your uh, question this time. I'm going to get you next time, Angela. All right, on to the last question of the day, and I really want to talk with, about this with Maxime because it's something I, th- I think that he's probably interested in. Steve Crandell uh, writes in, uh, have, you know, have you seen the paper, this interesting paper, on uh, food pairing hypothesis, uh, and it's called A Flavor Network and the Principles of Food Pairing by... Uh, uh, Yang uh, Yeol on et al. Okay, and it was a paper uh, last year by you know by a peop- bunch of people in a, in a um, out of a bunch of different uh, institutions. Uh, anyway, so what I, I haven't had a chance really to have uh, Maxime look at the paper. Yes. So we're not going to talk specifically about uh, the paper, more about just the general uh, the general concept of it, um, but. The basic concept of food pairing uh, has been uh, popular over the last, uh, I don't know, what do you think, the decade or so? Decade? Yeah, at least, yeah, 10, yeah. 15 years. I mean, really. You know, and it's something that, uh, you know, at the Fat Duck you're exposed L-B- to a lot. Yeah, L-B- duck, and the basic premise is is that you can get, uh, and it's controversial, and Maxime and I, we've never discussed it together, so no. we, we might violently disagree, which would be an awesome way to end the show. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the, the basic principle is that you can learn something about food pairings or get interested food pairing ideas by looking at the actual chemical similarities between right. Right. different food the items. The com- right. And so uh, what, what happens is, is there's large databases of uh, what flavor components are in various different ingredients and then those are analyzed and uh, the fat duck was famous for which ones? The, the white chocolate and caviar both had a, a very similar uh, uh, volatile component and it was very interesting. Was it good? I actually never had it. Really? I knew the idea. Then I had a, 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 a cocoa and roasted cauliflower, also both shared a, a compound, and that was a, it was a beautiful marriage. And it makes no sense in you know in, in sort of a, a traditional context, but when you taste it together, you realize that th- there is there is definitely value to uh, approaching it that way. I don't think it's as, it's as consistent and as secure of a, an approach that that people will will. will Presume when they're when they're really getting into this, right? Um, I mean, the, approach them. The study which you should read is, is actually quite interesting. What yeah. they've done is they've taken uh, a bunch of recipe databases, uh, and then they've analyzed uh, the recipe databases to see whether when you scan across many thousands of recipes. Uh, is there more often than not shared ingredient, shared ingredient flavor components or not? A pattern range. And in the Western uh, corpus, there was, and it was correlated that more than the statistically random amount of recipes shared flavor components. Right. And in their East Asian uh, data analysis, uh, fewer than the statistically uh, number of shared ones would. And, and But what it boiled down to, the really interesting thing is, is that basically what it is is that 75% of the recipes they pulled in Western cuisine shared a very small number of flavor, uh, yeah. a small number of ingredients, sure. and those ingredients shared a lot of things like butter, milk, egg, you know, like like a lot right, of the, right, yeah. it's, it's very simple, um, yeah, right. And the six most common, uh, you know, Asian ingredients didn't share a lot of characteristics, and so because those things basically weighted everything out, and all of the other recipes, if you remove the most common, uh, you know, six to ten ingredients out of uh, out of our out of our toolkits, then it's basically statistically random in terms of that, which is interesting. Here's my personal feeling about it is that anything that gives you an idea that's going to make you, uh, that's going to give you a good flavor, then fine, do it. Whether it's like throwing dice, uh, using a, uh, you know, a a dowsing rod, whatever in the hell it is. If it gives you a good idea, it's good, uh, but that, you know, nothing in the world, there's no, no chemical analysis is going to replace your memory, your taste palate, what you've done before like you might get an idea and then try it and then know how to tweak it but there's just there is no there is no substitute for having tasted a lot and having cooked a lot absolutely absolutely yeah. and, and to to sort of you know it's interesting that the the um, i guess the the parallel between western cuisine and and, and eastern cuisine and and how we're, we're noticing that the, the, these correlations um what i think is really interesting about eastern cuisine in this sense is that you know, taking away the the sort of uh, chemical uh, balance of, of a few few uh, ingredients uh, is is the balance of flavor, and and what I love about Eastern cuisine is that you you know you, now we're talking about uh, flavor. I mean uh, the, the the tastes, uh, uh, salty, bitter, sweet, acid, um, and, uh, and 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 paying less attention to this you know this sort of you know sort of 
artificial combination of things that that may have a, a synergy or not. To. Right. Uh, and so, if, if if when you build a sense, of, uh, when you build your palate, uh, the balance of of flavors is you know be- through practice becomes a very inherent part of your of your you know culinary experience, and a lot of these things may be more confusing or. Or misleading, right? But I, you know, I think what hap- what happens is, is is with anything else. Look, the people who are using these kinds of ideas, uh, right? Or you know, in modern cuisine, using new pieces of new pieces of equipment, new sure, techniques, whatever. Sure, these are usually, in general, a very highly creative set of people, and they're looking for inspiration. Yeah. Like, and I've said this many times. Like the the, the fundamental thing that Ferran gave us was the desire to look outside of the normal. Uh, kitchen for our inspiration Absolutely. you know what i mean and Absolutely. the and that that's the thing it's not foams or whatever it's this it's this it's this intense curiosity and this uh, uh you know love of learning and so as cooks do this they you know they're looking for very you know di- you know di- different and disparate sources of uh, of inspiration and is is this idea of uh, different chemi- different chemical uh, shared things? Could that be a source of inspiration? Of course, sure. of course, sure, of course. But someone who doesn't have the palate to back it up, doesn't have the experience to back it up, it will be confusing, as you say, and, and it can be a disaster, a horrible disaster, <laughs> be, horrible. Yes. So why don't we end this show on horrible disaster? Thank you, Maxime. Thank you, Donna. Nastasha. See you next week on Cooking Issues. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.